Greg Reed, who usually takes care of uh, stats for our Sunday school, has told me that for the past couple of weeks in a row, uh, we've had uh, 56 people in our Sunday school classes total and double digits in Nancy's kids class. So I want to give God thanks for that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today. We thank you for all that you are doing. We thank you for all that you are doing in our lives, in our individual hearts, in our families, those that are close to us, in our church, in our community. We, Lord, Lord, we thank you for all the mighty works you are doing. We thank you that you do not leave us where you find us, but that you take us sometimes and oftentimes kicking and screaming, but stretching us and growing us and making us more and more like you. We thank you that we are not the same people that we once were, but that you have progressed us, you've promoted us, you have deepened our faith, you have strengthened us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word that is our source of life, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word spoken by God. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word that changes us, that does something in us, that convicts us, that brings us closer to you, and that gives us your hope and your peace. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together and the power of your spirit would go forth through your word and make a difference in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who've been with us the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been doing sort of a little mini-series uh, on the Antichrist. And, and if you're new here, you might think, well, this is sort of a random topic here. Uh, but to Paul writing to the Thessalonian church, this second letter that he's writing to the Thessalonian church, it was not random to them at all. It was something that was very much on their minds every second of every day, and it was causing a, a, a lot of harm to the church. And, and we'll see why. Not too long ago, on April 19th, our nation witnessed the 243rd anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord. It's known by historians as the first battle of the American Revolution and the setting for what has been known as that famous thing of the American Revolution, Lexington and Concord, the shot heard round the world, right? Both of my parents were born and raised in the tiny little state of Rhode Island in the New England part of our country, so I have a lot of extended family from there. I'm not a Pats fan, those of you who were worried about that. <laughs> I, have, I do have a lot of extended family up there. One summer, a while back now, while visiting relatives, my father and I took a day trip to Lexington, Massachusetts. When you get there, if there weren't any signs or a visitor's center, and you didn't know any of our nation's history, you wouldn't know that anything happened there. It just looks like any other triangular green in the middle of any small town. In and of itself, it doesn't look like anything special. And if you didn't know what it was or what happened there, when you got there, you would just walk right past it and, and visit the nearest Dunkin' Donuts or something around there. Thankfully, the town has preserved the history, and you can go see the very place where the shot heard around the world happened. Oppositely, around that same time, a week before that, at least those who cared enough about it, who were observing the anniversary of the Battle of Lexington, 
The New York Times published an article on April 12th, like I said, a week before April 19th, noting a survey that showed the overall memory of the Holocaust is fading from Americans' minds. A Jewish organization published their survey on Yom HaShoah, or Holocaust Remembrance Day. Referencing this study, the organization's president made this statement, and I quote, on the occasion of Yom HaShoah, it is vital to open a dialogue on the state of Holocaust awareness so that the lessons learned inform the next generation. We are, alarmed, we are alarmed that today's generation lacks some of the basic knowledge about these atrocities. There's an old saying that goes, those who don't know history are what? Doomed to repeat it, right? That's so true, it's scary, isn't it? I want to take it one step further, though, and add those who don't know the future are also doomed. A lot of people don't want to know what the Bible says about the future, even care about it, or want to know, or even care about what's going on now, which directly connects to our future. We're going to be finishing up our little mini-series on the Antichrist today, along with the future prophecies connected to that topic. And I hope by the end of our message, the Holy Spirit will open our eyes a little bit more as to how this affects us now, even as believers in Jesus Christ. That, in turn, will help us to overcome in our spiritual lives in the here and now and confidently relay this news about the future to those we come in contact with to hopefully prevent them from the doom connected with the prophecies concerning the Antichrist. So the first point that we come to as we work through our passage this morning is the prophecies. That's our first point. Before we can connect this to our life, in the here and now, let's look at the prophecy that Paul gives the whole, uh, through the Holy Spirit in our passage this morning. The first part connects with what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want all of us to see this. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I should be hearing lots of page turning now. Uh, it's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, that's fine. Look in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. I just want all of us to see this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, and we read, That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. If you've been able to join with us uh, for either the message a couple weeks ago or a message last week, You'll remember that between the two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, which we know today is simply as 1st and 2nd Thessalonians in the New Testament, Paul reveals some detail, which he says in 1st Thessalonians 4.15, is a personal revelation to him from Jesus himself about what will happen in the last days of the world. The language that Paul uses is strongly indicative that he is drawing heavily upon Jesus' words as recorded for us in Matthew 24, who in turn was directly referring to the prophecies given in the Old Testament book of Daniel. That said, Paul gives the Thessalonian believers, and God gives to us today, a pretty clear timeline of events that will take place before the end of the world. You might be thinking to yourself, 
I've heard all these different things about the end of the world. I've seen every movie there has been made about the end of the world. Contrary to popular belief made famous by countless movies, the, movie is, the world is not simply just one day out of the blue going to be consumed by a rogue sun flare or worldwide destruction. That's not how things are going to work. There are going to be distinct end times events that will happen before God destroys the world. Just having a good understanding of that gives us peace when the next craze of what someone says is going to end the world comes out. The first event that starts the world hurtling towards the end, for those of you who haven't been with us for the past couple of messages, is what is known in theology as the rapture. It comes from the Latin word rapturo, and it means to snatch up or to take away, as if a thief would, would come into your house and snatch away different things. Paul affirms... Paul reassures the, the, the Thessalonian believers that where, the, that, that, that where they think they are in world history is not true because the rapture hasn't happened yet. See, they thought that because of all this ongoing persecution coming at them, that they were already in this horrific end times event known as the tribulation, which we'll get to in a minute. But Paul had to explain to them, listen, you're not there yet. Because something else needs to happen before that, and that's the rapture. And if you're still around, then you've missed the rapture. And because of that, the rapture hasn't happened yet. The rapture is the first event to happen. Jesus will partially return in the air and call up to himself all those who had previously put their faith in his death and resurrection for their salvation from their sin and the coming destruction. Both those who had previously died before that point and all those who are still alive at that point. Sometime following that event, obviously referring to Daniel's prophecies regarding this son of destruction, Paul affirms that a man will rise to power through promises of world peace and prosperity. That man is known by several names in scripture, but the most famous one is the Antichrist. He will convince the nations to join with him into one world government in connection with deception and the promise of peace. As the leader of this government, he will establish a treaty with the nation of Israel, promising them peace. And like I said last week, how attractive do you think such a treaty is going to be to the Jewish people living in Israel? Very attractive. And if it has not happened before this point, what will most likely be a part of this treaty will be the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, which was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. When this man establishes this treaty with Israel, what the Bible describes as the seven-year time period known as the Day of the Lord or the Tribulation period will initiate. When the Antichrist makes that treaty with Israel, that will start this seven-year period known in Scripture as the Tribulation. This seven-year Tribulation period is a time of judgment upon the earth unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And if you want more information as to why God will do this to the world in the first place, why a loving God would do this to the world in the first place, please take a watch or a listen to our message last week available for free on our website, and podcast. As we talked about last week, even though all the believers in Jesus are gone prior to this point, 
during the time of the rapture, the Holy Spirit will still be continuing his ministry to calling people to faith in Jesus. For the first half of the seven-year tribulation period, God will send two preachers, known as the two witnesses, to proclaim the gospel to everyone. At the halfway point, those preachers will be killed by the Antichrist, and their bodies will be put on display in mockery of them and of God. However, three and a half days later, these men will be resurrected and taken up to heaven in the very public sight of everyone. And it's at that point that the Holy Spirit, like we talked about last week, is also removed from at least his ministry of generally keeping evil in the world in check. Like we talked about last week, there's a very clear distinction at this point in world history. Revelation 13 says that the Antichrist will be given the authority by God to do whatever he wants. With the Holy Spirit gone, there will be a great delusion that will come over the earth, deceiving the majority of the population to defect from any smidge of belief in the one true God, and wholeheartedly devote themselves to worship of the Antichrist as the Christ or the Messiah. We read exactly this in verses 10 through 12 uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians. Please follow along with me. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that all may be judged who do not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. We talked over the last couple of weeks that at, that at this halfway mark of the tribulation, the Antichrist will break that treaty that he had made with Israel, get rid of the Jewish system of worship, and instead set himself up in the Jewish temple as the Messiah. This will initiate a time of unprecedented persecution against the Jewish people and against remaining believers in Jesus, unlike the world has ever seen. Jesus describes this unprecedented persecution in Matthew 24. Now, why in the world would all of a sudden the majority of the world's population see the Antichrist as not only a world leader, but God himself? There are a lot of people out there who think our president is God. I don't know where they come up with that. <laughs> but there, why in the world would the majority of the world's population see the Antichrist as not only the world leader, but also God himself? I don't see the majority of the world doing that today, do you? No. We just read that there will be a great delusion that God will send upon the world at this halfway point of the tribulation. But here's a good question. What is this delusion going to look like? See, we can read that and say, oh, well, there's this, everybody's just going to think that this guy is God all of a sudden. Is this, is this supernaturally blinding delusion going to be so powerful that everyone just suddenly sees the Antichrist as the real Messiah? Possibly. It might happen that way. What there's a good chance of also happening is that this delusion will be supernaturally poured out through an actual event that will happen that will cause most people to believe that the Antichrist is actually God himself. And this is what that event 
will probably be. There's a cryptic prophecy given in Revelation that sheds some light on this for us. We read in Revelation 13, the first few verses, Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. This is one of the other names given to the Antichrist. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. And the dragon, who in, if you look in the context of this, is Satan, gave the beast, the Antichrist, his own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon, Satan, for giving the beast, the Antichrist, such power, and they also worshipped the beast. We all got that, right? I don't need to explain any further. We close our Bibles, say amen, and head out the door. We're not going to spend much time on this, but let's unpack this a little bit because it directly connects to what we're talking about here. You're probably going to find other interpretations of this elsewhere, but another term for the Antichrist in Scripture, like I said, is the beast, especially the beast with seven heads. When you look at the context, the dragon is obviously Satan. The imagery of the sea elsewhere in Scripture is symbolic of rebellion against God. For the symbol of the Antichrist to have seven heads and rising out of the sea of rebellion against God most likely means that the Antichrist government is going to be the last of seven Gentile nations that have and will oppress Israel. We have this confirmed for us in Revelation 17.10. When we read about these, about these seven heads, five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. Five kings that have already fallen possibly refer to the world empires of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Empires that oppressed Israel. The one that the sixth that is currently reigning while John is writing this letter would be Rome. And the seventh one is the one connected to this seven-headed beast. The ten horns, each having a crown, are probably ten world rulers who have joined the Antichrist One World Government Confederacy. Now what is said about the last head of the beast, or the leader of the last Gentile government, world empire, that will oppress the Jewish people? What is said here? That there is a wound that is inflicted upon the Antichrist, or this last ruler, that appears fatal. And that's very important. Appears fatal. That, we read there in verse 3, that seemed wounded beyond recovery. The note of that wound is very important. The wound is clearly described as something beyond recovery and appearing to be fatal. And we read elsewhere that it's done by a sword. Somehow, as Revelation describes, that seemingly fatal wound is miraculously healed, which, which is described for us in Revelation as being attributed to the power of Satan. That event may very well be the turning point event in the world, in addition to the subsequent satanic signs and wonders that will convince the majority of the world's population that the Antichrist is the Messiah or the Son of God and that Satan 
is none other than God the Father. That's what Paul is describing in verse 9 of this morning's passage. Now the description of the wound is very important because there's a major difference between the wound of the counterfeit Christ and the wounds of the true Christ. The true Messiah suffered wounds that caused him to actually and physically die and then rise again from that actual and physical death. The counterfeit Messiah will suffer a wound that only appears like it will be fatal and then is miraculously healed. And here's the mind-blowing difference here between the two. Only God could actually and physically raise the true Messiah from actual and physical death, thus proving Jesus as the true Messiah. Satan, having only limited power, does not have the power to actually raise someone from the dead, but only heal somebody who appears to be dead. But it will be enough to convince the world. That's the ultimate deception of the Antichrist being the real Christ. And the probable cause of the great delusion that leads the world to believe in him as the real Messiah. Just like counterfeiters can only try to come as close as possible to mimicking the real thing, Satan and the Antichrist will only be able to come as close as possible to mimicking the death and resurrection of Jesus without actually replicating it. However, it will be enough to convince the majority and deceive the majority of the world's population into believing that the Antichrist is the Christ. Ultimately, that delusion will be sealed by the supernatural working of God. Now, here's a good question. When you say that everyone will be deceived into thinking that the Antichrist is the Christ and worship him as so, does that include any believers in Jesus who are still around? It's a good question. The short answer is no. We know from the Bible that anyone and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus has their eternity sealed from that point forward. Paul tells the Corinthians, he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. That promise does not change, even at this point of the tribulation. Even though the Holy Spirit will not be restraining the amount of evil allowed in the world anymore at this point, he will still be preserving the faith of those who continue to, put, to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. That truth and promise is confirmed by both Paul in our passage this morning, as well as John and Revelation. Paul says in verse 10, that only those who do not accept the love of the truth of the gospel, and rather, as verse 12 describes, took pleasure in wickedness, will be the ones who are deluded. That's so their judgment for their indulging in evil will be complete, as verse 12 explains. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be preserved through this delusion, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Revelation 13 tells us, it was also given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints, all those who had put their faith in Jesus, and to overcome them. And then it goes on to say, if anyone is destined for captivity or imprisonment, to imprisonment he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here, 
is the perseverance and the faith of the saints done through the Holy Spirit. So we talked about the prophecies in connection with the Antichrist and the great delusion that's going to come over the world that's going to lead every, the majority of the population to see him as the Christ. And what does this teach us about the here and now? That's our second point. What does that teach us about the here and now? We talked about the majority of the world being deceived into thinking one thing that wasn't true. Believe it or not, the spiritual warfare and the spiritual deception that will occur in the tribulation is not new to the future. It's not something that all of a sudden starts in the tribulation. It's already going on right now. That's part of what Paul is describing in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already happening. It's happening behind the scenes. We know that the Antichrist will be so effective with his deceptions because he will be influenced by Satan himself. And what does the Bible describe Satan as? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Get this. Because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks is a lie. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's all he speaks are lies. He knows exactly how to twist the truth in just the perfect way to make it sound believable, even to believers in Jesus. One of his most prevalent lies in our culture is that he does not exist. There's no need to battle against anything that doesn't exist, right? Another prevalent lie is that he's some sort of goat-looking person, red all over, with horns on his head, hooves on his feet, triangular-tipped tail, and holding a pitchfork. And none of that is in the Bible. The more cartoonish Satan can get his likeness in people's heads, the better. You don't need to fear a cartoon. A cartoon is nothing to contend with. And so the people in this world keep going completely blind to what is going on spiritually all around them. They deceive themselves, but more so are deceived by the enemy of their souls, that everything is human-connected and thus can be humanly solved. They place their faith in certain politicians, in militaries, and themselves to be the ultimate solution for the pervasive problem of evil. They think they don't need God. That if he exists, he's just some other personification, like the devil, but for good. He's just some old guy with a long white beard who sits on clouds, smiting people one day, and being completely oblivious to the world's affairs the next. Jesus is a cool-looking guy with a hipster beard and sandals on his feet and went around spouting off platitudes like all you need is love, like he was a member of the Beatles. And all the while, people around us laugh off God and the devil, completely ignorant of the spiritual battles going on all around them and heading straight for eternal spiritual destruction. The deception is real. Not in the fullest sense yet, as we've seen, but it's here right now. 
Even for believers in Jesus, we're often lulled into this fake reality of what we can see and process with our five senses. We're lulled so often into this fake reality that God, through the Apostle Paul, had to tell us point blank what world we often forget is there all around us. And he says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is a world that we're, even as believers in Jesus, are often so lulled in the thinking doesn't even exist. It's not going on all around us all of the time. See, our enemy does not usually come at us in obvious ways, although he does do that from time to time to try to scare us. Most of the time, however, it's in subtle ways, ways that we don't often think of as strategies of the enemies of our souls and of the church. I'm not going to get into all these ways because they're personal to each of us, and he uses our greatest weaknesses personally. But I bet if we sat down and really processed what was going on in our lives, that we would begin to see those subtle strategies of Satan to introduce sin, chaos, doubt, anger, bitterness, resentment, prideful stubbornness, ignorance to the truth, resistance to spiritual change, reluctance to communicate with God through his word and prayer, a lack of desire to gather with God's people for faith growth, or interpreting your circumstances in a way that is not the way that God sees or intends for them. And I heard a lot of shifting around in the pews as I read over that list, so I'm guessing that I'm not speaking into a vacuum. Am I right? If we took the time to process through all the different areas of our lives, we will probably see, we will probably be surprised to see how the enemy has dug himself in. If we really humbled ourselves and really processed through all the areas of our lives, I bet that we would be surprised to see in what areas the enemy has dug himself into. At that point, repentance, removal, and making right are crucial if we're ever going to move forward in our spiritual growth. Do you think you're going to win a war if the enemy has put different holes in the walls and he's sticking his head through those holes? No. We need to kick the enemy completely out. We must always keep this warning at the forefront of our minds, knowing that these spiritual battles are going on constantly in ways we may not expect all around us with no break. That's why the Apostle Peter says, stay alert. It's going on all the time, constantly, all around you. There's no break. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. devour. That's his goal. He's not saying, well, I'm going to go get a hot dog and on the way I'll look for someone to devour. That is his mission. Everything he does is connected to this. Do you think the forces of darkness ever take a break? That they get some sleep? Of course not. 
So this is happening 24-7 all over the whole world, and yet we're so often lulled into thinking that it's not happening. Who was Peter even writing to at this point? He's not writing to the lost, people who are on their way to eternal destruction. He opens up this letter by saying, I am writing to God's chosen people. I'm writing to believers in Jesus. I'm writing to children of God. And then he says this, Not one of us, even as children by Jesus' blood, God's children by Jesus' blood, not one of us are immune to the attacks, deceptions, and strategies of the Prince of Darkness. That is the world that we live in. We need not fear him, but we also can't ignore him. We need to be aware that he's constantly trying to deceive us constantly trying to deceive us, constantly trying to lead us down the wrong path, and constantly trying to make us not see his role in all of it. That it's something else, that it's connected to someone else, that it's connected to ourselves. Don't be surprised when you see him trying to mess with your mind. Don't be surprised when you see him introducing viewpoints and feelings that are anti-God And don't be surprised when you see him fanning the flames of your selfishness. Don't be surprised. It's happening. That's what he's a pro at. We must be alert, as Peter said, at all times, knowing this is going on at all times. But here's the thing. What may seem intimidating or scary is actually a very, very good thing. You think to yourself, how is this good in any way? The enemy's constantly attacking me, and I'm not, I don't even know what's going on half the time. How is that a good thing? It's actually a source of encouragement. Why? Because the forces of darkness see what God is doing in you, the changes he's making in your heart, the impact he's making on your family, loved ones, church, and community. And you know what? The hierarchy of evil sees you as a worthy target. Like I said, it's not scary. It's nothing to be intimidated by, but it's something we must always be aware of, not lulled into thinking it's not happening all around us, all the time. It's something we must always be aware of and guard against by putting on that full armor of God every day as Paul notes in Ephesians 6. That way we can recognize the deceptions and strategies of the enemy in our lives, as well as in the lives of our loved ones. Not only can we recognize them, but we can get rid of the foothold they have and guard against future attack. And we can do all of this with the full confidence and power of Almighty God fighting right alongside us because... Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for opening our eyes through your word and through your Holy Spirit. That while we haven't yet seen, the world has not seen the fullest sense of deception that Satan will have for the entire world. 
through using the Antichrist, that we can see that it's already at work right now. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be opened. I pray that we would take the time today, tonight, to really sit down and process through all the areas of our life and, and, and ask ourselves the question, does the enemy, has he dug in at all in any, any of these areas? I pray that we would humble ourselves. I pray that we would not say, no, no, I'm the one person on earth that this isn't happening to. Well, Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves. We will come before you because we know that we who humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, you will raise us up. So, Lord, I pray that we would each take a hard look at every area of our lives, see if there's any place where the enemy has dug himself in, repent of what needs to be repented of, get right with you what needs to be gotten right, and move forward. Not bash ourselves over the head with it every day, but receive your forgiveness and forgive ourselves and move forward. Because, Lord, you are using us in mighty ways and you are using us to be an unstoppable force for good in this community. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.